Hi, everybody. This is your cousin, Brucey. And you are about to go on an excursion following your dream with our host, Robert Miller, a great podcast. And I'm looking forward to listening to I Love to Follow My Dream. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am your host, Robert Miller. This podcast is for all you dreamers out there. Everyone has a dream. Mine was music. Took me a long time to pursue my dream. But finally, when I was in my 60s, I followed my dream to success. So I guess I'm living proof that you're never too old and it's never too late to follow your dream. And this podcast is about helping all of you to pursue and succeed at your dream, whatever it is. I've told you that each episode of the podcast is going to start with a different song of mine that's played under the introduction that you just heard. In this episode, you heard a snippet of my reimagined cover of a song by The Who, one of the great British invasion bands. The song is called I Can't Explain. It was actually their first number one single. And the version that I played to you was recorded live in Serbia in 2018 when my band Project Grand Slam performed at the Nisville Jazz Festival. And we then put the song along with the rest of our performance on our album, Greetings from Serbia. I'll tell you more about that song later and I'll play you the entire song at the end of this episode. I chose the song because it's one of the iconic songs of the British invasion era. And my relationship with this week's guest goes back to when this era was still in full swing. My guest is George Schweitzer. George is someone who followed his dream and it led to a 30-year career and unparalleled success as the head of marketing at CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. George led the transformation of CBS into America's most watched network. He led the promotional strategies for a veritable who's who of hit TV shows, including Survivor, CSI, The Big Bang Theory, The Good Wife, 60 Minutes, The Late Show, The Grammys, The Super Bowl, March Madness, and The Olympics. The only one not on this list is Captain Kangaroo. He's won every broadcasting award that was ever created and probably a few more as well. George and I first met in college at Boston University, where we both worked for WTBU, the campus radio station. I was just a lowly disc jockey, but George was the station manager. And back then, we all knew that he would go on to become a huge success in broadcasting, but we had no idea that he was going to accomplish as much as he actually did. George, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Robert, it's a pleasure to be back with you. Uh, We've stayed in touch kind of on and off. We've drifted uh, in and out since our BU days back in the 60s and 70s. But I love how you have followed your dream. And um, 
it's remarkable how far we've all come. Little did we know. That Little point. did we know at the time, exactly. When we were broadcasting through the the building bones, right? It was yes. the, the steel buildings. Yes, we were long before this internet thing, whatever that is. Yeah, whatever that is, exactly. So let me ask you, did you always have a dream to be in broadcasting when you were young? Was that your dream? Yes, my dream... My dream took a little, uh, a couple of different routes, but my dream was always to be in some form of television production. And uh, in the beginning, it was news. But why? Why was that? Why did, how did you pick television? I was just very excited by journalism and the medium. I would watch Walter Cronkite do the CBS evening news every evening and take notes on the stories and things. I liked journalism in high school. And uh, I just said, you know what? I want to be a newsman. I want to work in the TV business and I want to work at CBS because that was the gold standard. They invented broadcast journalism and perfected it and carried it on. These were the days, you know, decades ago when we had very little choice. There were three major television networks, three major news networks, basically, and radio. There was no internet, there's no social media. So you got your news every night for 30 minutes. And that's essentially what you knew until the next day at seven o'clock at night. And I had a passion. I wanted to go to Boston University because they had a great communication school. I, I found my passion, as you indicated, at the student radio station, which to me was my college education. It was far more valuable to me than any class I took. I'm sorry, BU, but you know that experience was the way it was. And meeting folks like yourself and others of our colleagues and friends who have come and gone and come through there, we all shared that interest. We all brought different backgrounds and things to it, but my passion was that. I was very serious about it, maybe too serious. I was the station manager for a couple of years, and I learned a hell of a lot. And I took that and parlayed it into a job at CBS, which I started, I think, uh, in April of 1972. We didn't graduate till May, but of course, I did all the coursework. I do have a diploma, I promise. <laughs> it's here somewhere. It's somewhere in my boxes. But um, I was so excited. I couldn't wait to get to New York City and start, you know, uh, at the bottom of the barrel on the midnight shift in the CBS newsroom working... Uh, midnights to 8 a.m. and four to midnights and so on, Wednesdays through Sundays. Uh, so it was off Monday and Tuesday, which was really great for social life of a you know, 22-year-old kid in New York City. But it was my dream. It was my dream. And I was at CBS 48 years. Um, the 30 years was as a head of marketing. Um, I wait, a minute, wait a minute, 48 years? Yes. So okay. I went right after school, 72. And we're not talking, you, you don't have a Japanese background, right? No. I mean, only the Japanese work at one place for 48 I, years. So, so people have told me. Um, <laughs> you know what? I was very fortunate. Uh, I survived about six different ownerships of the company. The company was bought and sold about five or six times. Uh, you know. You went through the Larry, the Larry Tish era? Yes. We had Westinghouse owned us. Larry right. Tish owned us. You know, Viacom owned us. Then we went independent. Then Viacom owned us again. Uh, there were many different iterations of that. But the word passion was so clear to me. As long as you have a passion 
for something. And mine was CBS and broadcasting and the business of communication, uh, mostly entertainment. You, you, you just hold on to it and you're judged by that. And I was very fortunate to kind of make it through all that time. And you went from, you wanted to do journalism. You yes. Said, yes. But, but you went into promotion. How did, Correct. That, how did that take place? I started in journalism. And that indeed was my dream. And I realized very early on, I kind of realized I love production more than the journalistic aspects of everything. I love the behind the scenes, behind the camera, the, the, the scheduling, the logistics involved, the operational aspects, the pulling things together. I guess you can say, you know, as I say to my kids all the time, we're all producers. Producers just get things done. And if you can be a good producer for whatever you're doing, whatever business you're in, that's a gift, that's talent, and that's a saleable talent. And so that's what I did. I was basically a producer. I liked being producer more than I liked writing and, and realizing that I wasn't going to um, make it the whole way to become you know, the, the successor to uh, any big broad newscaster, which was fine, because I often also feel it's important to know what you don't want as important it is to know what you want. And that's part of a passion. So my passion was for the business. And because I knew how the sausage was made, it was easier for me to move up at CBS and communicate these things, which is how I ended up in marketing and running the marketing department for 30 years. And I never took a course in marketing. I don't have an MBA. Now, I just want to tell you how our lives diverged completely. Okay. We both went through broadcasting and film. Right. When we were at Boston University. You right. go into CBS and you go right up the ladder. You're there for 30 years as the head of marketing, 48 years in total. I graduate, and the only job that I can get in broadcasting is in the mailroom of WGBH TV, which was the public television station in Boston. Right. And the only way that I could get into the station was through the mailroom. They couldn't care less that I had a degree of any kind. And the deal was I was supposed to spend maybe a month or two in the mailroom, and then I was going to get up into the production end of things, which is what I wanted as well. Mm -hmm. And guess what? It was a time of inflation and lack of movement within the station. And I got stuck in the mailroom for a year. Mm -hmm. And it was only because of that that I finally said, I need to find a new career. So you st you went into CBS, you started kind of at the bottom, you worked your way up and you became this raging success. I went into the mailroom and I found a new career. <laughs> and you didn't do too badly. Well, it took me a lot longer than you. You only yes. spent 48 years succeeding. It took me 48 years to get to the point where I started to succeed. Hey, but you know what? It's It's all about the journey, I guess, right? Correct. It's all about the journey. And, and believe me, it was not, you know, overnight took, took 40 years, you know, so <laughs> it's not, it's not as, it's not as idyllic as, as you describe it, but I'll take it. Yes. I've been very fortunate. Now, during that entire time, the world of broadcasting and television in particular changed completely. As you started out saying, when you went into broadcasting, it was three networks. That was it. You had what, 95% or so of the market. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. By the way, right. did you ever hear his explanation? They asked him one day, what is news? And he thought about it and he said, I can't tell you what news is, but I'll tell you what it isn't. All the planes landed safely. 
I always remembered that. Anyway, you, you were there as the whole entire broadcasting world transformed. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was very, very interesting because we saw the threats on the horizon and the threats in media and communication and, and entertainment are the same as they are today. More choice, more competition. And a lot of uh, the networks at the time were riding very high and uh, had their heads in the sand when cable came along. And cable started as basically a way to get better reception. It was basically a cable from an antenna. And that's how it started as CATV, Community Antenna Television. And it later became, you know, a programming source and a big one. And all through the 80s, the early 1980s and early 90s, there was a lot of poo-pooing. And, um, you know, we'll be just fine. Everything's great. And it was a nibble here, a nibble here, a nibble there from the uh, these uh, nation cable networks, which were very smartly branded. And that is they were narrow casting. They were, you know, there was music television. OK, you knew what that was. There was the Weather Channel. There was Cable News Network. It wasn't an ABC, NBC, CBS, which is something for everyone, which is what our brands were, something for everyone, big TV network. So that was the beginning of a tremendous change. It took away a lot of advertising income. It split up a lot of uh, programming um, choice, and it, but it gave the viewer, the consumer, more choice. And I've always been kind of the consumer. I take the context of the consumer. I always looked at my job running marketing, which was the job of getting people to watch our programming, which is essentially what it was. It was not about selling ads. That's the sales department. Those people sold the commercials. I kind of ran an agency within CBS that developed commercials and advertising about our programs so that viewers like yourself and millions and millions out there would learn about what they were and they'd be interested in watch them. That was the job. And it was a, a mix of art and science, more uh, gut than textbook, a great mix of creativity and strategy, all of which I absolutely love, just absolutely love. It was as exciting as it was anxiety producing, uh, headache generating, stomach ache, uh, sleepless nights. You know, what keeps you up at night? I always said, what, what keeps you up at night? Your job. You know, what doesn't? Uh, competition, competition. The viewer can go somewhere else. And the cables came along and they grew and broadcasting had to make a transition. And then, you know, our, our enemies became our friends and our friends of our fr of our enemies were our enemies and our friends and you know all that the way that all goes you know the different business relationships I don't mean personal friends and enemies, I just mean business relationships and it got to the point all of a sudden with the internet same thing and now we see the remote control changed everything because the remote control gave the viewer more control. Wait a minute. You, you mean you mean the clicker that the we use? The actual clicker that changed everything. Now, my first remote control was my brother. I would say, Peter, <laughs> make it louder. Turn it up. Peter, turn the sound. Peter, move that antenna over there. I mean, you know, he was my remote control. You know, I didn't. Did he have do a, a good job? Yeah. Do it? Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's what yeah. counts. So you know, and I wasn't the only one whose brother was a remote. Was <laughs> hey, remote. my brother was my remote control too. Well, there I you go. That. Okay. And the clicker, we would call it then share of thumb. 
because your thumb was basically making the decisions. And that's when surfing became known, channel surfing. Again, this is new to people who are probably watching this who, you know, were born in the last 30 years. But, you know, there was a thing where you just click through and you'd see what was on Hold TV. On. I, I have to interject for people that are not as old as we are. Yes. It was actually a time when you had to go up to the television Correct. and turn a knob on the television in order to get to another channel. Yes. Okay. I mean, now people don't come near the televisions because we're all seated, you know, eight feet away or whatever. But that actually was the way that you had to do it. So you're right. When the clicker came into being, it was like a revelation. Absolutely. Okay? You didn't Absolutely. have to get up any longer. By the way, let me just interject. I am talking here on the Follow Your Dream podcast with Mr. George Schweitzer, who was Mr. CBS for so many, many years. And I just wanted to let everybody know what we're doing here. Please continue. Okay. So the the whole shift in entertainment, home entertainment control, went from the network type TV companies to the consumer when they could have control of when they decide what to watch. And then right after the, the clicker came the DVR. And the DVR you know, which uh, was called the VCR at the time. And we put tape in and, you know, again, something that's changed dramatically, but it basically allowed you to time shift programming. So the consumer was free from the shackles of the TV schedule, which used to be, and you recall back in those days, you know, at eight o'clock, you watch this at nine o'clock, you watch this at 10 o'clock, you watch this. And if you missed it, you didn't see it that again until it. the summer. Yeah, that was the it. summer repeats. You know, one of my favorite activities when I was younger, every year around the beginning of September, TV Guide would come out with their special fall issue. And the fall issue would have all of the new the new shows that were coming out. That's it, the fall preview. 500 pages. You talk about TV guides, happen to I collect old TV guides. Um this is the one from I don't know when. Whatever. I mean, they still have cigarette ads in here, so they don't <laughs> but um, this is the one from ba, 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 ba. 60s or 70s, something like yeah, that. Yeah, 70. Yeah, whatever, whatever. This used to be TV Guide was the biggest circulated publication in the world, in the world. OK, regular magazine publication. It's now like nowhere. Oh. Yeah, right. Fine. But I mean, this was number one. And, and for a marketer, for an advertiser like CBS, if you took an ad out here, it guaranteed you ratings and the ads were very expensive. But that was it. That was what everybody advertised in. And you learned all about the shows. It told you who was in the shows, what the shows were about, what time they Correct. were on. It you was for, it. for people that were into television back then and to the whole full lineups. It was Nirvana. Oh, for sure. For sure. It was, it, it was the Bible, the Bible of television viewing. And people used to plan their viewing by when the TV guide came on Saturday and the listings started for Sunday, you would sit there and you would read through for the week and right. you would sometimes dog ear, you know, turn down the page on days that you had programs you were interested in watching. And people would literally plan their viewing. And we, we, we tried to take advantage of that as a marketing technique in the early 90s by using the word more in our advertising, plan, 
plan or do this or do that or make a habit to do this so that we would try to influence people. I mean, you know, nothing, nothing subversive here, but just say, hey, when you're thinking about what to watch this week, there's something good on Thursday on CBS and you ought to give it a shot. And we even looked at the idea of viewing post-it notes that we could buy as an ad in TV guide. We call them clicker stickers. And they were like post-its and you would, uh, they would have the names of our shows on and say, peel it off and make, you know, put it on as a tab in your TV guide. So there are all sorts of different devices and ideas, but yeah, that that's gone the way now of search. Well, you know, it's, it's, and so has the DVR. I mean, oh, sure. now the DVRs don't exist anymore. You know, it's like in music, the world changed from albums to CDs. Right. And now if you ask anybody 30 years of age or younger, do you have a CD player? They look at you like you're from Mars because none of them have them. In fact, they used to offer CD players in cars. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can get CD players in cars any longer. So the whole world of music switched to streaming, unfortunately, which mm-hmm. has been a, a sea change. And in the broadcasting business, so you switched to DVR first. That's now become extinct. You can take your DVR box and just throw it in the scrap heap at this point. And then the world changed once again when things like Netflix and Amazon Prime came in. Talk about that. Well, that's where we are today. And that's, yes, streaming. What happened to the music industry was just a precursor of what happened to the television business. And that is the consumer responds to three things that we call them the three C's, choice, convenience, and control. More choice, meaning so much more programming available. More convenient, meaning you can watch it whenever you want, not when we as the TV network wanted. And control is that thumb. You know, you're in charge and don't tell me what I want to watch this at this time and so on and so forth. And that's what streaming has done. So I wouldn't say we went kicking and screaming into the streaming world because we knew what it was going to do. And so we worked with it, at least at CBS. We started our streaming business long before the other networks did. We had a CBS All Access streaming channel. We had an app. It's all further developed now and so on. Obviously, everyone's in that business. But streaming is basically the the nirvana of choice, convenience, and control for the consumer. If you think of a seesaw, you know, and and um, you know, or scales, and one side is, you know, the consumer and the other side is the programmer, the consumer is now waiting everything, really in control. And by the way, it's great. You just we just have to learn how to work along with that. Right. Where do you think it all goes? What's your prognostication here? Uh, I think that we continue to see personalized entertainment choice. I think we see the platforms continue to grow. But the one thing we don't see is the expansion of your leisure time. So we are all the entertainment choices. Music, what your business is, television, entertainment, what my business is, sports, news, any form of what I would call consumer-oriented entertainment and information. It's all competing for your share of time, of leisure time. Okay, so you sleep, you work or go to school, and whatever is left over is leisure. 
And you could do, I mean, that's not like leisure sitting at the beach. I mean, that's doing non-work and non-sleep. Right. So, but what are you doing? Could you read? Could you ride a bike? Could you do this? Could you do that? That's what's finite. The, The program choices are infinite, infinite. And that's where it continues to go. But what we're seeing now is fatigue, choice fatigue. People, you know, there's no more TV guide. There's no more easy way. There's not one universal guide that you can go to if you search the internet or a Roku device or an Apple TV. Everyone's got their grid, their guide. The holy grail is that, that, that these companies are chasing is the one universal way to find out about all entertainment choice. Now, Netflix does a very good job. Netflix, two-thirds of their employees are engineers, computer engineers, not broadcast TV programming. Two-thirds of their company is people who do coding of different program types so that if they know you're watching X, they will send you you know, a promo or a recommendation for a similar type program. That's really smart, but that is their business. They're a retailer. And frankly, that's what so much of the internet is about. Certainly Facebook that I have used so much in the music area, it's exactly the same. They get to know what your habits and your preferences are, and then they market directly to you. So it'll have, you know, George's recommended shows or recommended whatever. I and and what I found in 30 years in marketing, trusted recommendations outweigh everything. Recommendation from a friend, a family member. Remember in the old days, pre-Facebook and so on, it used to be the camera buff or the computer guy, right? Oh, this guy's the camera buff. Uncle Joe is the camera buff. He knows everything about cameras. Let's ask him what kind of new camera I should get, right? So he was the trusted source. Then there was the movie expert. Oh, Susie sees every movie that comes out. She reads all the fan magazines. She knows the movies. The restaurant guy. Oh, you know, Bobby knows all about the restaurants. He knows every new restaurant. So you go to these, what were called trusted sources. And they used to be like people. Now they're computers. And now they're you know, <laughs> artificial intelligence gleaned from all these other things. But the trusted source, the recommendation Every year we did research in marketing on how people find out what's on TV and how they find out what to watch. Okay. And always the number one thing was they saw a a preview for it on TV. So you're watching a show you like, you see a preview, a promo, a commercial, a trailer for a new show or something different. And you say, okay, great. But as less people are watching, those promotional announcements don't have as much weight. So you have to find this other ways. And that was the biggest problem that I, that, that I dealt with in my time running marketing at CBS. I was going to ask you to, you, you've gone through all of these transitions, mm-hmm. you know, starting out with your dream to be in journalism, in broadcasting, and then going into CBS and into the promotional side of things. And again, because this, this is a podcast about people trying to pursue and succeed at their dream. Correct. And I believe that everybody's got a dream somewhere. And most people just don't get to their dreams. Life tends to get in the way. You're one of the few lucky ones that really followed your dream and, and it was there for so long. Mm-hmm. What would you say were the 
the challenges that you faced in terms of pursuing and succeeding at your dream? The, the thing that I think was um, really fortunate for me that I see so many people facing today, which is the hardest thing is getting in the business. Just as you said, you went to the mailroom and you couldn't get out, right? There are many, many more who do that, who end up that way than who end up where I just went. I got a job at the bottom of the line. Why? Because there aren't as many jobs at the bottom of the line anymore. And I see this, saw this for years coming where people would sit on, you know, in my office and say, job candidates, I'll do anything to get into Broadway. I love this. I have this passion. I'd say, okay. But we don't have these entry-level training kind of jobs as many as we did. We we have less people. We have to hire people who know what they're doing. And that's the old, you know, paradox, which is how do I get a job if I don't have experience? But how do I get experience if I don't have a job? So um, the, the dream part never left me, I would say. I lived my dream till the last day I was there. And I only retired, you know, a few months ago. And every day was not a walk in the park. Uh, it's a very competitive business. Great people, more great people than not. You know, some you have trouble with and you just have to learn how to deal with it. That's part of growing up as well. I had to learn things like how to sit on my hands and not be so, you know, impulsive and jumpy and uh, uh, listen to people more and, um, and, and, and understand the context of where they were coming from more than just, well, here's my idea for this. And, and I learned a lot in every single job that I had, but I was fortunate to start in the place where I wanted my dream to be. So I was, and I, and I never took that for granted, never. There wasn't a day that I didn't walk in that building, no matter how I felt, that I wasn't excited and I felt fortunate and I had to give back as, as much or more than I was getting. And I do that to, to this day, to this day. So you left um, this incredible career and it's only been a few months, you said. What now for you? Uh, I'm transitioning. I'm, I'm, I'm still following parts of my dream. I'm, uh, I'm a self-proclaimed media archaeologist. What is a media archaeologist, you would say? I said that too, but I found it <laughs> kind of the better description um, think Indiana Jones, but with like 20th century TV, radio, uh, iPads, I collect things. I mean, if you just, so, I mean, who has a 1980-something TV guide in, in, his, in his office? I collected old technology, um, old to the point of 20th century. Do you have, do you have rabbit ears, George? Oh, yeah. Just <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he's going to get his rabbit ears right now. Yep, he's bringing them back. This is not the man from Mars. This is the man with rabbit ears. Rabbit ears, by the way, were what people used to put on top of televisions when you actually had to get the signal from the sky. From an okay. antenna. There, there was no wire to plug in here. Think Wi-Fi without the Wi-Fi. It was, <laughs> it was TV signal. Um, and the reason why I collect this stuff is because when I got my job in marketing, I wanted to see, I wanted to learn from the past, which is what archaeologists do. So I wanted to dig up, in a sense, the advertising and the methods that CBS used in the transition from radio to television. 
because as I knew we were going to make another transition, which was to streaming and the internet and social media, I wanted to know how that transition went. So I, there was, I, you know, where's the closet where all this stuff was, was kept? There was none. They didn't keep that stuff for some reason moved on. So I assembled it off of uh, eBay auctions and swap meets and old magazines and so on. And I ended up assembling what we called the CBS attic, which was, you know, quite a ton of stuff that really showed the way how, how media um, rode the transition between radio and then to television. And then into, you know, we could help, it could help us learn from the past. So, you know, I don't exactly, you know, dig with a trowel, but I, uh, have curated quite a collection and my wife will not let me have any more packages arrive at the house. So <laughs> I, I have to kind of find a place for them. I'm talking to the Paley Center, the Museum of Broadcasting and to some colleges and so on about that. I was the, just going to ask you, when are you going to open up the George Schweitzer Museum? No, I don't think so. Although the gift shop business wouldn't be bad, <laughs> but, uh, but um, it makes me happy. It, it, it just, teaches me things and if we can learn from these things so i help others who are looking there's some online groups and so on and you know we chat we talk i i don't live in the past but i learn from the past so that's kind of the way so george just in in conclusion here this is again a podcast for dreamers what advice would you someone that's been as successful as you have been what kind of advice would you give to somebody that is a dreamer Never give up on your dream. Follow it. Be realistic. It does not happen overnight. I mean, much to, to your complimentary descriptions of my career, but it doesn't happen overnight. It's hard work, whatever you want to do. And if it isn't hard work, as they say, then you, you might not be doing the right thing. But have a dream, have a passion. I, I call it passion. It's interchangeable for the dream, but know your passion and follow it. You can achieve whatever you want, understanding that it is a journey. And, you know, I tried to, I, I have three daughters, they're all grown up now. I told them each one of those from the very beginning, sitting in their, you know, reading them bedtime stories. You can achieve anything you want. You got to follow your passion. You have to fight for the tools and the resources to get there, but you will. And if there's a fire inside you that's burning for something, do it. And as I said earlier, also, Robert, it's really important to know what you don't like, what you're not good at, what path you don't want to pursue. So if you take a job or you're trying something for a year or two and you, you think it's not right for you, good. You've made the decision. Now move on to something else. Well, I agree with everything you just said. In fact, part of my dream theory here is that you need to kind of figure out if you're going for your dream, is it working? Mm -hmm. And not every dream will succeed. And that's okay, too. It's the act of trying that is the most important thing, because that's where you get the joy and the inner satisfaction. You gave it a shot. I am of the view that you never want to look back at any point in your life and say, I regret that I didn't do such and such. Because we only go around once in life, and you may as well take your best shot. I'd like to thank my guest, George Schweitzer, for being on the episode. You've been listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am your host, Robert Miller. Remember to get your complimentary dream roadmap.
where I lay out my five steps to pursue and succeed at your dream just by going to followyourdreampodcast.com slash dream roadmap. Again, that's followyourdreampodcast.com slash dream roadmap. And if you would like to email me, please do so. I will answer all emails. You can send that to Robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. Again, that's Robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And as I said at the beginning of the episode, we started out with a snippet of a song called I Can't Explain, my version of this great iconic hit by The the Who, one of the wonderful British invasion bands. And the version that you heard was a live version played by Project Grand Slam at the Nisville Jazz Festival in Serbia in 2018. It became part of our album, Greetings from Serbia, which was released in 2019. This again, a live version, 20,000 screaming, hysterical, wonderful fans in Serbia. Listen to it. I hope you like it. And you can follow my music at projectgrandslam.com and thepgsstore.com. Thanks for listening. See you next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Searching candy.